Welcome to the Trauma Podcast again, where we're joined once again by Dr. David Feliciano, professor of surgery at the University of Maryland, editor of the textbook Trauma, and an all-around great guy. Thanks again for joining us, Dr. Feliciano. You're welcome, Joe. Today, I'd like to ask you about duodenal injuries. It's a very challenging clinical entity, and we'll approach it primarily from the operative standpoint that we're in the abdomen and we've encountered a uh, duodenal injury. So it, it, it's really such a high, uh, you know, a, a really concentrated area of high value real estate. So how can I, if I encounter duodenal injury, say penetrating primarily from a mechanism standpoint, how do I decide if I can repair that injury primarily? The duodenum has a great blood supply, and as long as you haven't lost tissue, which occasionally happens with a gunshot wound, you should try and do a primary transverse or oblique uh, suture repair, preferably in two layers. If you're actually missing, like, the anti-mesenteric wall, you basically bring up a rude limb underneath the right half of the, uh, or through the transverse mesocolon on the right side, and just do a a side of duodenum to end the rude limb. The only time you do a Whipple for a duodenal injury is if it's completely devascularized or if you have uh, combined pancreatoduodenal destruction or if the whip or if the uh, ampule is gone. It, there's a lot of mistake about duodenal injuries, but it has one of the best blood supplies with GI tract and with a good suture repair, leaks are incredibly uncommon. Well, so for those more simple injuries, and we'll get to trauma whipple in a moment, because I think a lot, there's very few people from our listener group and even senior trauma surgeons that have a lot of experience with that particular procedure. But with an isolated injury, is there, let's say, a stab wound or a gunshot wound that's not a destructive pancreatico-duodenal injury, primarily duodenal, does location relative to the ampulla um, influence your management in any way? Only in the sense that if you are concerned about the impula and the stab or gunshot hole is in proximity, you should simply uh, open the wound further and take a good look at the impula uh, and verify it's okay and that the medial wall is not involved with the injury. If those things are not true, then just repair the duodenum on the anti-mesenteric side is appropriate and I don't routinely drain those because it's sort of like the small bowel I would not expect it to leak with a repair done recent or quickly after trauma so it sounds like identifying that ampulla and its involvement is pretty important would you say that's true I think it's very critical particularly in the gunshot wounds where you know it may involve the medial wall which you cannot see unless, again, you open the anti-mesenteric wound further. If you have a hole that goes from the anti-mesenteric outside through the medial wall into the head of the pancreas, it's a very, very difficult injury to manage, and there are different opinions. Uh, Traditionally, I do try and close the inner hole near the ampulla with sutures, but the hope is that if you get it, for example, a pancreatic fistula, post-op, it'll drain into the duodenal lumen anyway. Okay. Good stuff. Um, What about if you're really having a hard time or you're concerned about that ampulla location, uh, does clangiogram have a role here? 
It does, but frankly, uh, you know, a good look by the surgeon is uh, probably as effective. Uh, I've certainly done on a rarest of occasion a, a cholangiogram, as we discussed yesterday, either through the common duct or the lower part of the gallbladder, just to see if there's any subtle extravasation, but again, rarely indicated. What is now? I've also, when you open the textbooks and dis- discuss and the literature you examine, especially some of the historical stuff, there's a lot of discussion about pyloric exclusion. What is pyloric exclusion? What's the rationale for using it? And when is it indicated? Well, it's an interesting question coming from you, Joe, who authored uh, one of the papers making derogatory comments about pyloric exclusion <laughs> based on based on a large database. It's, it's, it's a technique uh, described in the early 1900s for the treatment of duodenal ulcer patients who developed a post-op fistula. And it's simply making a hole in the most dependent part of the greater curve of the stomach in the pre-pyloric area. And then using a number one polypropylene suture to close the muscle of the pyloric uh, ring. I usually run two layers of number one proline and then adding a gastrojejunostomy at the site where you made your gastrotomy. In general, those uh, well-closed pyloruses from the inside will stay closed for about two to three weeks. After that, most of them start to open, but if you get an early duodenal fistula or a pancreatic fistula, things are diverted away again in many patients for 14 to 21 days so it gives you some time to get control of the fistula most large trauma centers are only doing this one or two times a year which is appropriate Um, I tend to use it if there's been a delay in finding the duodenal injury like maybe at a reoperation or when you finish your duodenal repair it's incredibly narrowed and or really contused or discolored or if you have a bad combined pancreato head injury and a duodenal injury but not enough to justify a Whipple any of those combinations are pretty rare and again um, when we were at Indiana we only averaged one to two a year well, I've heard people discuss using a stapler instead of opening the stomach and through the hole that you're going to do your gastrojejunostomy through, you know, sewing that up uh, and sewing it from the inside. What's your been your what's your take on the use of a laparoscopic stapler across the or an open GIA stapler across the pylorus? Have you do you have any experience with that or thoughts on that? I have strong thoughts about it because if you don't completely elevate the back of the pyloric muscle ring off the head of the pancreas, you can't really get a good stapler across. And there are no data, no x-ray data about how long they stay closed. One of the things people don't understand about pyloric uh, exclusion is that you cannot sew the pylorus permanently shut from inside and you certainly can't close it permanently or even temporarily for very long with a stapler. The most effective way to close it is with a proline suture again in two layers and I have a lot of experience because we used to do a post-op upper GI series in all of our pyloric exclusions just so we could find out how long they stayed shut. 
So I, I don't think you can really do a good bilateral exclusion with a stapler. And again, there are no data how long they stay closed. But I know from experience the suture stuff stays closed for two to three weeks in 95% of patients. Fair enough. You you talked a little bit about the Whipple, specifically the trauma Whipple, and the classic Whipple surgical procedure is uh, involves steps and things that you take out relative to cancer. It was initially a cancer operation, right? So um, it's it's it it dictates what you resect and then how you put things back together. From a trauma perspective, we're really, as you mentioned, there's a lot of great blood flow in there. You really don't take out the things you don't need to. So how do you, so the trauma Whipple has become basically a description of how you put things back together to some degree. Is that yeah. is that a reasonable interpretation of what the trauma Whipple is? Yeah, I mean, the trauma Whipple is often done by the trauma itself particularly in patients with blunt trauma where there's a crush injury at the neck of the pancreas and devascularization of the C-loop. The biggest change in Whipple's for pancreatic duodenal trauma over the past 15 or so years has been the fact that the vast majority of them are now staged, meaning you may only stop the bleeding at the first operation and then do the Whipple at the reoperation or you do the Whipple at the first operation and do the reconstruction, but a long complex operation in this area is to be avoided at the first laparotomy. It's very interesting, the mortality historically for Whipples and trauma has been reasonable, about a 30% mortality. But there was a study from Harborview in Seattle in 2013 where Uh, 15 patients had a Whipple, 12 of them were staged, and their overall mortality was only 13%. So using using a staged procedure, they had dropped their mortality by over 50%. So adding a Whipple and a long operation with other injuries is to be avoided in the modern era. It's just common sense damage control. The only technical point I'll make is that because the pancreatic duct is so small in the normal young person's pancreas it's really hard to do a duct to small bowel mucosa pancreatic jejunostomy and most surgeons find you still have to do sort of the wrapped up end-to-end pancreatic jejunostomy where you try and fold a big cuff of the jejunum over the open end of the pancreas even for trauma whipple I've always put in a stent across that pancreatic jejunostomy, uh, usually PE tubing 90 or 190, and brought it out through the jejunal limb and out to the outside of the body. Don't have any, any evidence that that works, but it does make me feel better to have most of the pancreatic tr- juice drained away from my suture line. You know, it's it's interest, always interesting to me. We use Whipple to describe a specific procedure, but when you look, even in the cancer operations, right, aside from the initial description of the true Whipple procedure, people use Whipple as this kind of umbrella of for a variety of different complex foregut reconstructions. 
Uh, and I think even talking with trauma providers, we obviously have to play the hand that we're dealt in terms of what's injured needed to be resected many times. But even amongst trauma providers, there's different patterns and approaches to thoughts on reconstruction, drainage patterns, feeding access. So if let's if I gave you an injury of a devastating pancreatic pancreatic head and uh, duodenal injury that I well, on trauma call, control the hemorrhage, resected what needed to be resected, and you've got a mid-body of pancreas, and distal is fine, and you've got a stapled-off pylorus and a stapled-off third portion of the duodenum. What is your approach to reconstruction of that, including the drainage and the feeding access? Yeah, it's pretty much uh, the same as... I would do for an elective Whipple with the difference uh, what I just mentioned, that is uh, most people doing elective Whipples these days do try and put sutures in the, the dilated pancreatic duct for cancer of the head and do a mucosa to mucosa pancreatojejunostomy, usually uh, end of pancreas to side of jejunum or they do a pylorus preserving procedure. For trauma, um, again, it's very hard to get that duct uh, with any sutures because of its tiny size. So I just first do the pancreatojejunostomy end to end with a polyethylene stent, bring it up in the uh, above the lesser sac with a one layer cholidoco jejunostomy, usually PDS suture like 4-0 and then just uh, your reconnection to the GI tract below. Do you intussuscept your pancreas into that, uh, you know, jejunal limb, or do you do a true kind of side, into side? Uh, for a, a normal size pancreatic duct, I'm from another time in surgery, and we were taught how to do the invaginated pancreatojejunostomy. Uh, the, the trick is actually to do two seromuscular layers. For example, when you put your posterior sutures in uh, from the end of the pancreas into the full thickness, or excuse me, seromuscular jejunum, after you do that first row, if you have enough mobility, you can actually do a second serosal muscular row posteriorly and anteriorly. So it's almost a three suture line anastomosis which is what some very busy pancreatic surgeons have used in the past when they did end-to-end anastomoses. It can be hard to do if you muck around too much because the jejunum gets very, very swollen after you start putting sutures in it up there. But that is one way to do a safe evaginated anastomosis. Let me ask you a little bit about drainage patterns in kind of two different scenarios. So the first scenario... Uh, being I have a second portion of the duodenum, a lateral aspect that I have primarily repaired. How do you approach drainage to those people? You know, I, I hear thoughts of, about triple drainage. You got to drain the stomach. You got to drain from distal. You got to drain outside the duodenum. What's your approach and your thoughts to the relatively simple primary repair of the duodenum? Yeah, as I mentioned, I don't think there's any data that suggests that a drain is necessary in those patients. If you can do a good transverse or oblique suture repair and you need a little bit of security you can certainly bring a pedicle of viable omentum down much as I do when I have a duodenal stump 
an elective gastrectomy and add another layer of uh, sort of serosalized tissue over the suture line. But I personally would not drain that. If I drain, it would be a number 10 Jackson Pratt drain left in place, much as we discussed yesterday, for about five to seven days. And distal feeding access or feeding access period in that particular patient with the primary repair, maybe you, you feel reasonably comfortable, but you're a little concerned about it. Um, how do you approach feeding? I'm not one of those people who's comfortable running a lot of tubes past a, a recent suture line. So if I had a patient with multiple other injuries, including the duodenal injury, uh, I would wait till the reoperation for damage control, and then I would do a Witzel jejunostomy uh, separately. We used to do a lot of needle catheter jejunostomies, as you know, that were popularized in San Antonio and other places, but the small size really limits your tube feeding to elemental feeds, and they've sort of fallen out of favor. But anytime you know you have a, a penetrating abdominal trauma index, the old Denver scoring system, greater than 15, you probably ought to add feeding access. If you're adding feeding access after a Whipple, you can just direct the tube down the uh, efferent limb. So let's say we, I, I do the damage control, I call you the next day, you help me do a beautiful Whipple as you've uh, described. Now the patient's in the intensive care unit setting, doing reasonably well after a few days. What post-operative studies do you, are you gonna think about adding in somebody who's not you know, clinically deteriorating, continues to improve? And when do you start to think about when can I restore normal feeding patterns? Yeah, as stated, I, I don't, uh restrict feeding in those patients. I simply have my feeding tube away from my pancreatogegenostomy. So it's a bit of a risk for a pathistol after a patient like that has had surgery. So I would consider starting early feedings within 24 to 48 hours, as long as they're away from my primary suture lines. There are minimal data, if any, about the use of prophylactic octreotide, you know, at two or 300, um, uh, three times a day subcutaneously. I do give it for the first five days after distal pancreatectomies or Whipple's for trauma, just to quiet down the whole system. But again, it's expensive. It's a painful injection for the patients, and there are no convincing data. That's just a personal fetish. If you don't see any black fluid, as we discussed yesterday, coming out of your peripancreatic drains in the first five to seven days, I think you pull them over two to three days. And answer your question, I don't do any studies at all. I just wait to see if a pancreatogenostomy has a leak. And so we've, we've covered a lot of ground here in a very short order of time. It's always great to pick your brain on this stuff. What have we missed? What, what other challenges would you want the young trauma-interested resident, fellow, or young trauma attending to know about duodenal injury and the trauma whipple that we've missed? Well, I think the biggest thing is if, if you do do, let's say, for example, a Whipple and you do get a leak, it is very, very unusual to have to reoperate on those patients in the modern era, uh, much like a duodenal fistula. I think you first get a CT to verify you just have a fistula and not a localized fluid collection with it that might be amenable to drainage make the patient NPO, put them on TPN, 
and then consider our triotide for five to seven days to minimize the early output. Re-CT the patient if they get septic and do percutaneous drainage of any fluid collection. The biggest risk after, a, for example, a Whipple with a leak, which is incredibly rare in both elective and trauma surgery, is a blowout of the gastroduodenal artery from just too much pancreatic fluid circulating near your ties on that artery. Fortunately, if you keep these patients well-drained, use some octreotide to keep the volume of the fistula down, it's an extraordinarily rare complication. Management would be the same for a duodenal fistula. Don't have to reoperate hardly ever. Just keep them well-drained. If it's not a monstrous hole, it'll probably seal over time. Fistulas, for example, from the duodenum that could go over three months should be studied at that point and on rare occasions will require a separate operation with a roulette. You are good, sir, an encyclopedia of knowledge. Thank you. Uh, so we've now moved into our the closing portion of our seg- uh, of our, this podcast, where we ask our random questions. Dr. Feliciano, are you ready for your random questions? Yes, Joe. <laughs> you sound so excited. Your first question, <laughs> sir: dinosaurs or dragons? Dragons. Why? Fulfills all my fulfills all my fantasies in life. Fair enough. Fair enough. Uh, what would be your spirit animal, Dr. Feliciano? Uh, some major predator, a lion, for example. Why Why such a visceral kind of response? Better to be at the top of the food chain than at the bottom, without question. Love it. Love it. Uh, what music are you listening to right now? What are you turning on the radio when you're stuck at home? I only play uh, two things at home. <laughs> One is ABBA, and the other one's The Village People, because those are the only two CDs I have at home. <laughs> we need to expand your collection, sir. There's been a couple of decades that have passed since those were last uh, issued. That's okay. I know what to get you for Christmas now. Um, okay. Who inspires you to be better? Uh, my primary mentor in my career in surgery was my father, who was a community general surgeon, uh, who had a lot of great success and was well respected and really my inspiration currently is my wife who does just about everything well in academics and reads over most of my stuff and helps me with a lot of things so those are my two inspirations she like you are a treasure to uh, are both of you are treasures to trauma and it's just such a pleasure to talk with you and thank you again for joining us on the trauma podcast dr feliciano thanks for having me joe and this is Joe DeBose concluding another episode of the Trauma Podcast. On behalf of myself and Dr. Rishi Kundi, we'd like to thank Dr. David Feliciano for his time today and invite you to check out all the rest of our content.